Hi everyone, I am Juan Toro and I will now present a paper that I wrote together with uh, Julian Kieberstein and Eric Griedfeld called uh, The Ecological Inactive Model of Disability, Why Disability Does Not Entail Pathological Embodiment. So I will um, pursue two aims in this presentation. I will uh, offer a non-reductive account of physical disabilities and normal embodiment, and I will disentangle through that non-reductive account, I will disentangle the notions of disability and pathology. I hope that uh, throughout this presentation, it will become clear why these two aims are relevant for current discussions in uh, phenomenology of embodiment, in embodied cognitive science, and in also in physical disability studies. So the outline of this presentation will be this one. I will start by uh, discussing uh, the conceptions of the person's body in the medical and the social models of disability. And I will also try to show how those conceptions lead to a pathologization of the disabled person's body. Then I will move, uh, I will show how the notion of normal body is a good point of departure for the investigation. Then I will explain uh, three main notions, uh, which are bodily normativity, affordances, and adaptation. And then I will show how these three notions are um, very relevant for the argument that I'm making in the, in the article. Then I will um, analyze Kangiliem's uh, idea, according to which being in good health um, is a feeling of being more than normal. Then I will, uh, through the aforementioned uh, notions, I will um, show how is it possible to make a distinction between normal and pathological embodiment. Then I will apply that distinction to the case of uh, cerebral palsy. And I will end the presentation with a, um, a proposal of how to understand disability from a phenomenological perspective in terms of the experience of I cannot, and how that can also be applied to distinguish between uh, normal and pathological embodiment. So let's start. Um, I will start by uh, discussing uh, the two uh, dominating models of uh, physical disabilities uh, so far. So, according to the medical model, disability is essentially a health problem derived from a clinically observable impairment in a bodily structure or function. So, the idea is that the disability is to be found in the body of the person uh, with a physical impairment and is caused also by those uh, by the physical impairment. So in, in contrast with this uh, model, in the 1960s, 1970s, um, an activist movement emerged that contended the medical model's conception of physical disability and tried and proposed that disability is caused by, a social, by social oppression and exclusion exerted on physically impaired people. So they would say that disability is a strictly a social category while impairment is a physiological phenomenon. So regardless of the clear opposition of the notions of disability that both models propose, both underlying both models, we find a notion of the body of the disabled person as an impaired, abnormal, and pathological body. Um, 
So the question is then, what is a normal body? And this question, according to Leonard Davis, is essential to understand disability. He would say, to understand the disabled body, one must return to the concept of the norm, the normal body. So, as I was saying before, the underlying conception of the normal body in the medical and in the social models of disability is that of the average body. The disabled body is thus the one that deviates from that average in terms of the uh, bodily functions, or structures, and so on. Um, this conception of the body is, of course, a, a caused by the reduction of both models uh, of the embodiment of the person only to a physiological body. They are really not uh, including in the account of disability the first-person perspective of the body. Um, uh, of the disabled person. How is it that the world emerges for a person from a first-person perspective through the embodiment, through the physical skills that that person has? So let's um, now try to revert this idea of uh, normal embodiment um, according to which normal the normal body is the average body. And for this, Georges Canguilhem has done a very influential work in the philosophy of medicine, trying to show that the norm is not deduced from, but rather expressed in the average. So the idea that uh, the average should be understood in relation to what is normal, given social practices, and the, not the other way around. So what is normal depends on the norms and values that people follow. And these norms emerge out of processes of adaptation of communities to their environment. Another way of saying this is that something is normal not because it is the average, but rather something is the average because it's normal. And it becomes normal because it's the best way for a community or for an organism to adapt to a given environment. So if it's the optimal way, if it's the best way that this community of individuals or this organism has found to adapt to an environment, it is likely then that these ways of adaptation will be spread around, will become the most common and thus will become the average. So again, this is a very, can, can be an obscure point, but the idea again is that the norm is, is not the average, but rather it's expressed in the average. So, our proposal is, that, is to make a distinction between normality and pathology in relation to the organism's capacity to adapt to its environment. This is what I will present in the rest of the presentation. So, um, and let's start with the notion of bodily normativity. So, uh, this is a very um, well-known point in, in activism and in embodied cognitive science, the idea that every organism is capable of distinguishing between situations as improving or deteriorating. Uh, and we call this evaluative capacity bodily normativity. It is normative because it is a guide to how the organism should act to keep the equilibrium with the environment. So if, for instance, the organism feels thirsty, then um, 
there is a disequilibrium with the environment and with the internal state of that organism, which can be solved by the organism drinking water, right? Um, so in the cases of humans, bodily normativity takes the form of an ability to distinguish better and worse ways of participating in human practices. So all human practices in all communities have some norms and uh, we can say that uh, we feel more adapted when we are able to follow those norms and we feel kind of a tension when we are uh, doing things in the wrong way or in a way that is not expected uh, according to the specific practice. So based on bodily normativity, multiple affordances offered by the environment will stand out as relevant for a person. So I'm here introducing a notion, the notion of affordance, um, which was developed by James Gibson in the 60s and 70s, um, which make reference to the invitations or the opportunities for action that an environment offers an agent, depending on the agent's um, bodily skills and capacities. So the idea is that uh, bodily normativity how somehow guides the agent or the person to act in certain manners. And precisely because that is the way that the person or the agent feels she should act, then some opportunities for action become more relevant or stand out as, as, as relevant for that person. So how to relate then the notion of normality and health? So Canguilliam describes the person in good health as feeling more than normal, that is adapted to the environment and its demands. So not only normal, but normative. So capable of following new norms of life. So he gives a, a, an example of, 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 the, of this by talking about an organism or a community or a person that needs to go from living, for instance, at the sea level to go to live in higher altitudes. So in that case, the norms that this community or, or this group of persons would follow when living at the sea level would have to be entirely different when they move to higher altitudes. There are different uh, kinds of food, there are different uh, concentration of oxygen in the air, there's different temperature, lots of things are different. And the only way that the community can adapt to a new environment is by producing new norms, following new norms of life, doing things differently, eating other things. Um, and this, he says, is how we can uh, measure how healthy an organism is, how capable it is to follow new norms, to establishing new norms, to deal with the challenges of a changing environment. So health, um, as the experience of being more than normal, is a cue to understanding the embodiment of disabled people in ecological and active terms, while distinguishing normal and pathological embodiment. I will try to show this um, in the next slides. So, normal embodiment. So, to be normal is for a living body to be able to maintain a state of dynamic stability with its env environment. So, based, based on its bodily normativity, the healthy organism adapts to changes by establishing new norms. So, depending on what the demands of the environment and what the needs of the organism are, the organism needs to adapt to 
what the environment offers uh, in order to keep the equilibrium. In contrast with this, we find in pathological embodiment that this capacity to adapt to change is transformed into a capacity to limit or avoid change. So according to Kangiliem, a person is in a pathological state when they can no longer establish and follow new norms of life, when the agent or the person um, holds on to the common way or the way that she has been used to do things uh, the whole life and every any change in the environment will be seen um, as a threat to to the to the person's life. So these this, this ideas are, are inspired by Goldstein's uh, distinction between ordered and catastrophic reactions. So Kurt Goldstein, who was a neurologist and also a psychiatrist, uh, saw how his patients uh, uh, with uh, neurological um, problems were, in many cases, uh, were um, had ordered reactions when they had to deal with certain tasks, and they would describe uh, he would describe these ordered reactions as feeling a, a feeling of smooth functioning, unconstrained, well-being adjustment to the world and satisfaction. So there's no problem, they have to do something and they can do it uh, with uh, and a, a feeling of easiness. However, when something went wrong, a small thing changed, changed in the way they used to do things, they would enter in catastrophic reactions. And in those when the person feels unfree, buffeted and vacillating, vacillating so the living body in these cases of catastrophic reactions is unable to establish a dynamic, stable relation with the environment. And the person experiences the environment as dangerous, as a threat to her existence. So in these cases, the person um, feels a threat to their existence in, in, in such a, an existential way that um, they feel that they need to do anything that is possible for them to avoid being in catastrophic reactions because they don't know if they will survive it next time. And the way to do that is only to be in familiar situations, not to try new things, not to go to unexpected uh, places where something different can happen. So, again, to make an emphasis on the point, I would say that normal embodiment uh, is for a person to adapt, to be able to adapt their activities, not only in response to the particularities of the current situation, but to a near open-ended range of alternative possible situations. Um, so the idea that things can go in a different way, that the circumstances might change, and the person would still feel able to adapt to those within a certain range. So they can, in Kangilian's terms, institute new norms in new situations. But in pathological embodiment, what happens is that a person feels unable to institute and follow new norms and instead acts exclusively on the basis of norm avoiding change. Then we describe them as pathologically embodied. So the idea is that the person feels so much under threat of being in a catastrophic reaction if something goes out of what this person expects that she structures their life, their being in the world around avoiding unexpected events and thus 
avoiding a possible catastrophic reaction because she knows that that's a, a life-threatening situation. So, but then uh, what happens uh, with people, with disabled people and with people with cerebral palsy? Are they always in this pathological state of uh, holding on to the familiar situations to avoid catastrophic reactions? So, uh, let's talk about a kind of a well-known case, which is Michael's case. So he has a cerebral palsy, uh, and uh, it's a, that leads to a hemiplegia. So he could he can't use his uh, left arm and his uh, left leg. Um, and then this is how he describes uh, going out to buy some groceries, like a very familiar situation for him. He says. The world that is my surrounding environment appears as something hostile, which I am a part of, but certainly not in. The world is an object I continually manipulate rather than being a friendly place and somewhere I feel at ease or even at home. Within this hostile world, other people appear as obstacles to be avoided, not just because I fear bumping into them and hurting myself and them. Even a hand offering help with shopping bags can appear hostile as it is an unexpected disruption to my work. I live in a world which assails the body and self, and I can only hope that the adjustments will allow me to survive. So this is a very clear case in which the person feels the world as a threatening place because, because the person, because Michael doesn't know if he will be able to react to any change, to an unexpected event, to even a, a, and offering a, a, a help, a helping hand can uh, become a very threatening situation for him. And all he does, as he says at the end of the quote, is that he will be able to survive uh, by adjusting um, some things in the world. So he's clearly on the verge of catastrophic reactions. He knows how that is. However, we performed an, an experiment with persons uh, with cerebral palsy uh, in which they would perform simple tasks uh, on uh, um, um, in front of one another with a stranger, a therapist, and a relative. So this is a picture of a reenactment of the setting. So two people doing basic tasks, uh, shaking hands, passing a glass of water, uh, lifting a tray with a cup of water on top of it. Very simple tasks. And after the experiment, after they did these uh, tasks, uh, we would, uh, they would participate in a phenomenological interview in which they would talk about their experiences, how they experienced the task, how they, was it hard, was it difficult, uh, how did they experience the other person, and so on and so forth. And this is what, uh, what uh, some of them told us in the phenomenological interview. Uh, one of them said, I wanted to try and see what would happen if I only did it with my left, with, the, of course, the left hand. And I could feel it was more insecure because the glass with water created some balance issues. Uh, some other person said, suddenly it dawned on me that I had done it this way every time and now I could do it differently. I, had, I hadn't even thought that you could do it that way. So in the middle, I stopped because I had time to think, God, you're right, but I had already begun the action. And really, it was because it dawned on me that I could do it in a different manner that, than I thought. Another one says, the water part was pretty much an impossible task. You have to be creative. Push it. I had to do it that way then. There's a solution to all problems. And another one said, 
When I had to give the cup back, I did it differently. It was almost conscious because I wanted to do it differently than I had done it last time. I thought that the last time I didn't spill, so now I wanted to see what would happen if I did. So it is very clear in all these uh, uh, reports how people with cerebral palsy were very willing to try different and riskier strategies, try to see what would happen if they would do it otherwise. Um, what is the best way to do it? And finding the optimal way to do it is only possible by risking, by doing different things, by exploring alternatives, by engaging with unorthodox affordances. These, uh, the, the participants in the experiment were clearly wanting and willing and able to do so. So they clearly show an essential feature of normal embodiment, which is that normally embodied people can transcend what is currently optimal in their active engagement with the world. By exploring responsiveness to unorthodox affordances or developing abilities to establish new and improved possibilities for engagement going into the future. So doing different things or doing the same things in a different way, exploring for alternative affordances. So, but what about Michael's case? So it is clear that Michael wasn't um, willing to try new strategies. So in that sense, we would say that Michael's is, a, Michael's is a clear case of a pathological embodiment. He can only live under one norm, that of avoiding change. However, participants with CP in the experiment were clearly willing to explore. And in that sense, we would say that they can be described as normally embodied, which clearly shows one of the central points of this presentation, which is precisely that disability should not be conflated with pathological embodiment. Um, now I will end up by uh, discussing some, uh, from a phenomenological point of view, the distinction between pathologically embodied disabled people and normally embodied disabled people. I will skip through this and then I would go uh, directly into the idea that the, these um, experiences uh, of disabled people um, engaging with different affordances can be explained in terms of the I cannot. So in normally embodied disabled people, we can say that they, the structure of the experience is a local I cannot with a background of I can. They always can do it in a different way. They can ask for help. They can do it slowly and so on. And so it is only a local I cannot, but they are willing to explore for the general I can. This is an entirely different situation for the pathologically embodied disabled people. They have a local I can, but it is surrounded by a global I cannot, which is always a risk for them and they don't want to explore it because they know that it is life-threatening for them. So in this sense, also from a phenomenological point of view, it is possible to distinguish pathologically from normally embodied disabled people. Um, so this, uh, this is pretty much it. And um, I hope you have enjoyed this presentation. Thanks.